Hey guys, on this episode of Manufacturing Unscripted, we have Sterling Shepard of Baco. We discuss robotic integration, vision systems, and the impact AI could have on robots in the future. Without further ado, enjoy the show. This podcast is sponsored by Promus Incorporated, the leading provider of fully electric servo presses for manufacturing. Promus provides global support for pressing and motion control applications in multiple industries. With precise positioning and in-process force monitoring, your company will begin to see ROI on day one. Call 810-229-9334 or email sales at promisinc.com to speak with an expert engineer about your application today. Hey guys, welcome to Manufacturing Unscripted. I'm your host, Matt Rawl. And I'm Lauren. Uh, today our guest is Sterling Shepard from Baco. He is the robotics and vision product manager and a project manager for Baco. Correct, Sterling? That is indeed correct. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, welcome. Um, you know, we connected uh, about a month ago and uh, I showed you the podcast studio and uh, you said, how do I get in? And I'm glad to finally have you on the show um, and kind of talking about a little bit about what you do in, in the robotics industry. Um, but before we do that, with all my first-time guests, I love to learn a little bit more about your journey through the industry and how you got to where you are today. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of that with us. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I uh, went to Illinois State uh, for college and uh, started off as an actuary science major. Uh, and that's basically people who do underwriting for insurance agencies. And I got to Calc 3 and I said, uh, forget this. <laughs> so switched over to engineering. It was a lot more tangible for me. And uh, probably all the way up into my last semester, I had no clue what I was going to do. So many different avenues, so many different things you could do. Uh, but we had an engineering lab with robotics, uh, with ABB robots. And that basically steered my career for me to actually uh, get a job with ABB initially. And started there for about four and a half years doing field service engineering. And then, uh, you know, kind of tired of the travel and the long, you know, hours and weeks. And so I ended up switching over to uh, the aerospace industry with Williams International, still doing robotics. And uh, everything was going fine. And then the pandemic happened. And mm -hmm. uh, basically everybody, you know, in the man got fired. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after that, I was just, you know, kind of looking for whatever was available because nobody was really hiring. Magna showed up and I was able to do research and development with them on contract for two years. And I got familiarized with KUKA, FANUC a little bit more. Uh, we were doing all different types of 3D vision and 2D vision and using PLCs and donor conveyors and all types of crazy things. And uh, after the two years were up there, it was like, okay, time to get back in house somewhere. And uh, Baco was one of the first companies that I interviewed with and everything went well there. And it just seemed like a great fit uh, with what they're doing in their culture. So uh, that's how I ended up with Baco. So what like drove you to robotics? I mean, it's quite the 180, I guess, from where you were going to kind of the robotic industry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, robotics uh, has always been cool. I guess going back to my childhood, I had always been in some type of robotics lab over the summer. And uh, I guess I never really put two and two together going to college. I'm just like, oh, robotics was fun for the summer, but for a career, uh, I don't know. And then as I started to get into it, took the classes, I was like, this this works. Um, you know, it, it was something that I was able to touch, and if I could touch it, I could learn it very easily. And so uh, it just kind of made a, a natural transition for me. And honestly, I, I was also taking PLCs at the same time. And so, you know, one of my final projects was making a, a robot move via PLCs and giving the commands and the handshaking back and forth. And so I was just like, I would love to do something like this for a career. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, and you've 
you know, kind of into what you do now is, is as a product manager. Um, I, I know you primarily work with UR Robotics, um, and and they're I would consider a very good entry level robotic system compared to the other ones, and just how you know friendly some of their software can be. Yeah. Um, so I imagine you deal with a lot of first timer, you know, robot users slash integrators. Absolutely. Um, and I guess what is that like? You know, what is the process for kind of integrating a robot? And then, you know, what are some of the common things you see out there for first time integrators? Yeah, I, I, was, I see with first time integrators, a lot of times uh, they don't know what they don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think having a robot is great and I think automation is great and I think everybody gets excited about the idea of automation and having a robot. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, you never want to make more of an investment into the product than you do yourself. And so with that, you know, with first time people that we have buying, you know, robots, automation, whatever it is, um, we encourage them to educate themselves. You know, you are, if you go on their website, they have a lot of free learning opportunities for robotics and getting used to the interface and how it works. And then even past that point, uh, furthering your education with a lot of the basic and introductory, you know, programming classes that they have or break fix classes or advanced programming or whatever it is that you feel like you need. But getting that knowledge on the front end or continuing to educate yourself through that process is, uh, you know, beneficial uh, and you can't put a price on that. Um, and then also a lot of things that we see, uh, you know, with first-time manufacturers is them not necessarily fully understanding how to automate an actual process. It's not like you just throw a robot in there and then it just goes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of have to think through the steps and kind of understand, you know, begin with the end in mind. Okay, what, what is your ultimate vision? Okay, let's work back from there and start to develop steps. And I think that's also where my project manager, uh, you know, hat comes in, kind of helping them think through the processes that they may not have thought through. And that ultimately allows them to have a beneficial solution. Yeah. I'm sorry, Matthew. Um, Sterling, can you take a step back just a little bit and tell us exactly what Beko's relationship to automation is? Because I know you guys work with a lot of robots, but like, what is the what is the partnership there? What is our partnership like with Universal? Yeah, with like Universal and like integration into new companies. So, so for for us, uh, you know, Beko. Uh, is very unique. Um, and, and even when I came on board, it was an eye opener to me to kind of see just all the different avenues that they are, you know, are avail- have to, you know, to their access. And so in the robotics and vision sector, you know, universal robots being our, our main robot that we sell, but all the ancillary equipment that comes with that. And so typically, you know, you look at distributors and it's just like, oh, you know, they sell this product, they sell that product. But Baco likes to differentiate themselves because we like to be able to sell uh, a solution to somebody. Mm-hmm. We don't want to just give you a product and say, okay, here you go. We want to be able to partner with you and, and develop a solution with you so that you feel empowered to actually take it on and see it work and, you know, get your hands dirty a little bit yourself. Yeah. And so and so those partnerships and those relationships are vital to us. Uh, Universal Robots ha- has been somebody that we've been working with for quite some time. Um, you know, one of our other engineers, uh, Roman, he's been, you know, with Baco since the beginning, and he's been working with Universal since they basically came here to the mm-hmm. you know, United States. And so that relationship for us has been vital. And so being one of those key distributors in the market and making sure that we represent Baco's name, represent UR's name, mm-hmm. but also go out here and, and support our customers uh, who are looking to, you know, get these automated solutions – uh, that's ultimately our goal, and, and those relationships are vital. Yeah. Um, cool. I, I want to put you in the hot seat a little bit. Yeah. And it's the term collaborative. Yeah. You are, I think, is just known for that term. I mean, that's – I don't know if I ever heard of the term so much before 
I saw you are kind of enter the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's, I think it's a very misused word these yeah. days. And I know for first time integrators and as an entry level, there, there could be, you know, some big risk if you don't understand what that means. Yeah. Um, I feel as though the word collaborative has probably uh, hurt you are more than it's probably helped <laughs> you are over there, yeah. <laughs> over their tenure. Um, because if you even talk to you are people, uh, they tend not to use the word collaborative. You mm-hmm. know, they tend to use the word power and force limiting mm-hmm. uh, or the fact that it's an industrial robot with collaborative tendencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you actually look at the the specifics and I won't dive into them yeah. deeply, but, you know, the the. You know, universal robots can move at the same speeds that, you know, industrial robots can mm-hmm. as well. It's just a matter of that you can have power and force limiting options within there to where you can stop it with your hand and you can set sensitivities and, you know, do all those different things that you wouldn't be able to do with an industrial robot because nobody's going to be in the same cage with an industrial robot. And so in that... Um, you know, we, we have to try and debunk that theory a little bit or try to mm-hmm. switch the perspective a little bit because uh, a lot of times people have looked and seen you are as a toy. Yeah. You know, you, you see it and it's like, oh, it's a six axis robot, but it can't lift more than 35 pounds yep. depending on which model you get. And, you know, the, the, the reach is limited and you see the market that you are was looking to penetrate in Michigan with the automotive sector and industrial robot is king. You know, mm-hmm. and so so how do you, you know, take a universal robot that has all these different capabilities and make it a player mm-hmm. in the in these automotive industries? And so because of that, we've seen a lot of people kind of have a negative connotation to the word collaborative. But what we're seeing now is that, you know, even if you go to automate shows, you know, yep. we, we saw more collaborative robots than we've ever seen. Uh, and people are starting to catch the wave and starting to see the mm-hmm. benefit of them, especially with the limited floor space that you get and the fact yep. that you can work side by side. So there's a lot of benefits to it. Yeah, I will say at trade shows, I love to see the UR booth. Um, and I never thought of it in the way that you um, said, like, oh, these look like they can only handle small things. Because I guess I already had that in my mind. I didn't even, like, put two and two together. But in their in their booth, you know, they have so many that you can just stand around and get really close to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fascinating. But, yeah, you're right. From, like, an end user perspective, yeah. they might be like, oh, these are limiting. What would it be safe to assume then that the the term collaborative is more of just a notification to a purchaser that it has the ability to be programmed in such a way that it is safer to be by an end user or an operator rather than say one of the bigger robots that's non-collaborative that you just don't have that internal feedback to tell you that hey you just smacked an operator no, definitely, definitely. I, I think yeah. when you when you look at the traditional industrial robot, mm-hmm. even though we put fencing around it, there's nothing that's safe about standing next to it. Yeah. Um, and so to debunk that entire mindset of what people think robotics actually is, and to tell them no, you can actually stand next to this robot and it's going to stop and be safe, uh, is a complete mindset mindset shift. Uh, mm-hmm. We've done multiple trainings with multiple different facilities and bigger OEMs, and we show them that, oh, yeah, I stick my hand out here and the robot stops. And they're completely, like, mystified, like, okay, what what is this witchcraft? Mm-hmm. But right. at the same time, I think you start to see the industry uh, shifting to that perspective because they want to show that symbioticness between the humans and the robotics working together. And so the more that you start to show that and and the more you start to show that capability, I think the more people start to buy in and they start to realize all the different benefits that Mm -hmm. come with it. 
something we, yeah we mentioned yeah, yeah. um like the safety factor so what makes you are different like as far as safety factors i know that maybe it's a slower speed maybe it's um i don't know but what what would you say some of the differences are when it comes to you are yeah so so internally uh, within their encoders um you know basically when the robot experiences forces outside of what it normally is supposed to experience along its path the robot will stop and go into a protective stop mode and so not only does that protect the robot uh, but it also protects whatever's around it you know the human you know sensitive equipment, whatever that may be. And so you can set those safety parameters. You can set set the sensitivity on that. So, you know, like I said before, traditionally an industrial robot, you tell it to go from point A to point B, it's smashing through whatever it's in its way. Mm-hmm. It's not stopping. But with these collaborative robots, they're really uh, taking into thought process, okay, well, how do we make this to where it is safe for people to stand next to it? Um, and then, you know, we, we talk about collaborative nature. Um, you know, if you if you put a knife on the end of a collaborative robot, it's no longer collaborative. <laughs> That's right. my favorite. So my favorite <laughs> description of collaborative. So so it you you also have to think about what the end of arm tooling is as mm-hmm. well. You know, if you put a, a, an electric servo gripper on there, okay, that's that's great. But you mm-hmm. put a shunk servo gripper on there that has you know all this force behind it, three hundred mm-hmm. newton. I mean, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. And so now you you go into ideas of okay, I'm I'm able to add a safety scanner to this to where the robot will progressively slow down as I get closer yep. to it and stop when I get within a certain zone. Uh, and now I don't have to put up all this expensive fencing and guarding mm-hmm. and light curtains and all these different things, but now I can actually just put up one safety scanner and it eliminates all that extra floor space that you need for a lot of those different things. And so it has so many different capabilities that you can do from a safety perspective and from a force sensing perspective uh, that is not what traditional industrial robots have. And, and just to kind of add on that from my experience is that you know what you get with collaborative robots is that you don't require complementary safety devices, you know, at its minimum, right? So in the simplest form, the robot has some built-in safety precautions that will stop where the industrial ones, you do require some type of scanner at minimum if you plan on having people around. Yes. You know, with collaborative, you can eliminate in the simplest cases Absolutely. some of those complementary products. But I want to get into that as well because, you know, I think – as a, a natural progression, you know, you've picked the robot um, and now you're trying to integrate it. I think from my experience, what a lot of people have overlooked is all the complementary stuff that you talked about a little bit earlier is, you know, there's tooling, there's end of our tooling, there's, you know, fixturing and, and stuff like that. I guess from your, from what you've done, what are some of the more common you know, technical hurdles that you've seen people have to kind of overcome once they've decided to go that automation route? Yeah, I I think a lot of the technical hurdles that a lot of people um, fall into is the fact that a lot of people tend not to think about automation on the front end until they have to on the back end. Which mm-hmm. requires a whole lot of reengineering with how they've laid out their floors and their shop spaces and different things like that. Um, and because of that, they think, oh, I want a robot. I want to do automation. Okay, great. And then you go in and look at their facility, and it's like, okay, well, we're going to have to spend, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars to reengineer whatever you have here before we can even think about putting a robot in here because you just don't have the infrastructure for it. 
And a lot of times people kind of miss out on that idea of being proactive in their thought processes of, okay, how do I want to engineer my floor space or understanding that the world is only becoming more and more technological. So if we're thinking about automation, how do we put that thought at the forefront so that we can automate you know, our, our facility or we can lay out our facility to be friendly towards automation? Um, a, a lot of things that they, they also don't think about uh, is, like you said, the, the, the fixturing of certain things. You know, we come in and we're like, oh, okay, well, we have, uh, you know, high mix, low volume, and we got 200 different parts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, so h- how are we going to go about that? I mean, do you already have fixtures available? If not, mm-hmm. then we need to start create fi- creating fixturing. If you don't want to go fixturing at all and you want to go completely fix your list, okay, now we're talking about vision because the robot needs to be able to identify what it is that you're looking at. And so a lot of times, you know, kind of, get, you know, and like I said before, this is kind of where my project manager yeah. hat comes in, is trying to help them understand the concept of what, you, what you're trying to do. Because a lot of people think robot and pick and place and we're good to go. Mm-hmm. No, like you have to understand all the sequences and processes yep. that go into that. And I think that the other important thing too is is as you're looking at these, you know, repetitive tasks that you maybe you're trying to automate and, and free up an operator to do something a little bit more skillful or something, is you are losing kind of that that thought process, that thinking that an operator can make and that split judgment. So you do almost have to sometimes really reduce the application down to a, a very simple and crude process, unless you want to add in, you know, the PLC and vision and all that stuff, you know, the robot by itself doesn't always necessarily have that brain, right, to think and make decisions on the fly unless you account for it. Where with an operator, you just throw someone in there, you take for granted that fact that they can make split second decisions without having to require anything else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's where automation has been, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, since its inception is the fact that it's trying to replace the mundane. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, those simple pick and place or having a person just sit there and do the same thing over and over again. I remember we we went to one facility and they literally had people standing in front of a machine for 14 hours and they were literally just picking things from one spot to the next. But the reality is, is that the cycle time on it was so quick, they were just like, it makes more sense just to have a human standing here. But those mundane tasks is what the robot was designed to do. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And and I guess as we start to talk about that too is, you know, recently to this podcast, right, there's been a lot of AI uh, um, talk and, and progress made. And I'm interested to hear what you think from, from a robot supplier integrator perspective. Like, what does that mean to you? Like the, you know, the advancement that we've recently seen in AI and, you know, the you know, the people that are, you know, nervous that a Terminator is going to show up tomorrow. You know, uh, I I guess, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think uh, AI uh, is amazing. Um, You know, just with all the different things that it's able to do and all the different capacities, uh, it just seems limitless at this point. Um, And uh, I think one thing that AI is starting to do, you know, we talk about the robot, you know, doing the mundane tasks, now it's starting to kind of give the robot a brain a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's starting to add in some complexity to what they're capable of doing. Um, And 
I, I think, you know, a lot of people are just like, oh, well, robots are taking jobs. No, I think it's actually repurposing people to do something more meaningful uh, with their mm-hmm. jobs because, you know, yeah, you're, you're going to get those onesie twosies that still want to sit in front of the machine yeah. and just do the same thing. But, you know, when you start to give people purpose uh, behind their positions, that's when you start to get a lot of buying into your company and you start to shift the culture. And so as you got, get these robots that have this AI technology adapted to it to where it has a brain and it can think and it can adapt mm-hmm. and it can identify. Um, and it can do quality control, and it can uh, it can start to see deficiencies in processes, and it can start to build a neural network, and you know all these different things that come with it. Uh, it's really going to shift the landscape of what robotics is capable of doing uh, in the in the future. Um, it's really going to start to, in a way, replace the traditional programmer or the mm-hmm. you know the, the traditional integrator uh, mm-hmm. because now it's able to go directly from the supplier to the customer, and you can take somebody who doesn't have a lot of robotic experience and have them create a solution with very minimal involvement because all the brains are behind the scene, and those yep. are the things that I see. And, and and on that too, right? We've had we've had a guest on the show that um, their company creates AI that basically learns from operator decisions and kind of can make clones of that operator based, you know, so far. And I think in today's society where it's very hard to get labor, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's becoming increasingly easy to say take your seasoned operator and have them you know, start answering questions, going through scenarios and having AI learn that. And then you could theoretically then take robots and duplicate that operator very easily. Um, and, you know, realistically, in a world where a supply chain is an ongoing issue and getting parts and things like that, that is an, you know, an easy solution. I know there's a lot of upfront work to it, but, you know, if you can't find people, this is definitely the avenue and it seems like that door is opening up more and more yeah. uh, for people. I mean, I, the the whole worker shortage thing baffles mm-hmm. me. Uh, yep. I, I took one day off and I decided to go to Target, and there were more people in Target on like a Wednesday <laughs> than a Saturday. And I'm like, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, we we see it across the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the fact is that even though there's a worker shortage, that doesn't mean that the demand stops. It right. doesn't mean that people don't stop wanting things. And so I think being able to, like you said, duplicate the knowledge process and and, and the functionality of these operators and these different people that have all this tenure or have all this knowledge. Um, is ultra beneficial. Um, I, I think AI is, I was thinking about it last night, and it's basically a tangible ROI. Mm-hmm. You know, before we were able to say, okay, ROI will project it out. Oh, you know, you get it back in a year, but everybody's like, okay, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. But AI is starting to turn into like, okay, you're telling me that it can do this. This solves all my issues. Give it to me now. And we're starting to see more and more people invest in these solutions because they start to see the return on investment right mm-hmm. away. Um, what else with robotics do you see, like in in advancing manufacturing, advancing the industry? You know, I, robots aren't going anywhere. Yeah. But you know, what what beyond just AI do you think is next for robotics? Um, I think what's next for ro- robotics um, is, uh, and, and AI kind of covers this a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, the ease of integration. Um, I see that coming. I see increased capabilities coming. I see more complex tasks coming, um, and so. You know, just kind of diving into that a little bit more, um, the ease of integration has become so great because for me, I, I came from a traditional uh, robotic 
you know, background with ABB. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't know how to program an ABB robot, you're calling somebody else to help you program yeah. the ABB robot. Uh, same thing with KUKA, same thing with FANUC. Yeah. Um, but when I looked at UR and their platform and just how easy it was, I mean, just to put it in perspective, I took it home to my wife who knows nothing about robotics, mm-hmm. wants nothing to do with robotics. And I put it on the floor and I was like, all right, we're going to program a pick and place application. And within 15 minutes, she was able to actually program a pick and place application. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, cool. you know, just the user interface from that and the simplicity of it. But you take that one step further with AI and everything else that's going on. Now you're able to say, okay, not just a pick and place application, but I'm able to take an entire system and put it into into production. Yeah. And we're start, starting to see that a lot more and, and how quickly that can happen. Because at the end of the day, if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so the quicker that you can deploy these applications, the more and more people want to buy into it because they, they see that return on investment. Um, the increased capability abilities and the complexity of tasks, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, we, we have to understand that the robotics is basically trying to duplicate what humans are capable of doing. So if, if robotics is the arm and, you know, AI or cameras is the vision and the sight that gives mm-hmm. direction to the arm, now we have to start to understand, okay, how do we get a little bit more complex? How do we do what a hand does? Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, you start to think about how you can close your eyes and pick something up and articulate it in your palm and get the profile of it and the, and the dimensions of it and what it feels like and the textures. And we're starting to see uh, robotics and technology getting into that space to where how, how do we articulate these parts and how do we mm-hmm. move it and all these complex tasks and things like that that we start to see gauging and different things like that. And I think, uh, you know, as we start to develop more of that technology, robotics is going to skyrocket into a totally different dimension. Mm-hmm. What is the, um, so are you seeing a ton of vision applications in the industry right now? Oh, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, vision has always been prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I always had a love-hate relationship with Vision because I started off when Vision wasn't fun at all. Yeah. And, I still uh, have a hate relationship <laughs> with Vision. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when I started, you know, with ABB, you know, I, I was part of the, one of the very first projects that integrated a pick-and-place application into the Ford Sterling plant, and this was with a Cognix camera that we slapped an ABB label on the side of, mm-hmm. and we integrated it into Robot Studio, but with half the functionalities that the camera can actually do. And it was very archaic, and mm-hmm. it was just like, I hate this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, for a long time, I tried to push vision away. But now you're starting to get into, you know, the 3D bin picking and the structured lighting and, you know, the capabilities of that. And then, you know, take it a step further. And now you're like, OK, well, now you're having, you know, people who are camera agnostic, mm-hmm. you know, to where they have the software and the brains behind it. They don't care what camera you throw in there. But as long as the camera can see it, it can identify mm-hmm. it. And yeah. all you have to do is draw a box around it and say, this is what this is. And, you know, being able to identify things like that. And so vision in and of itself is skyrocketing to a whole nother level mm-hmm. because, you know, and I mean, it's even going as far as, you know, uh, LiDAR. And it, I was like, man, yep. LiDAR and, and radar, that, that was only on cars and stuff. Yep. But now they're yeah. using it in automation processes. And so vision in and of itself is is going to be on a whole different level. And they're utilizing that within AI as well. And so that is the key. Yeah, I thought it was really cool um, to see like a company like Canon kind of like reinvent themselves, you know. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really interesting when I was doing market research. I think that was a couple of years ago, but still, I was like, "Oh, Canon, what? Like working with robots? This is yeah. so." Yeah. I don't know. It was just cool. I, and I think to love vision in today's market, you have to have hated it, <laughs> right? Because I don't think people like you just mentioned like the the progress they've made. I don't. If, unless you don't understand how much progress has been made mm-hmm. and how much advancement's been made, can't appreciate it. Um, I don't think you can, honestly, because it's not like you just take a digital camera and all of a sudden you got vision. 
you yeah. know it's there's a there's way more to it there's you know material composition you know uh, the background becomes way more important now it's there's just so much that goes into vision that it took enough engineers to hate it to say we have to do this better oh yeah absolutely you know? and so i think that's that's just innovation in itself you know and i think we've I, I would agree that we've definitely made a lot of progress, but I'm still think on on the hate side right now. So hey, I'm I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. Um, well, Sterling, uh, is there anything that uh, you want to talk about that maybe we didn't have a chance to so far? Uh, no, not off the top of my head. I, I think uh, we touched on it a lot. I think mm-hmm. the the AI aspect. I mean. There's so much more further that you could dive deeper into. Yeah. That. I mean, that that in and of itself could be a whole podcast and a whole conversation. But you know, I, I was even looking at it. I, I ran across an article the other day, and they were talking about Walmart uh, instilling you know AI into their facilities so mm-hmm. they could have all these cameras above, and they can tell when there's stock shortages and what they need, mm-hmm. and you know who's mm-hmm. shopping for what, and you know, and then they showed the computer system that they mm-hmm. have to run this stuff and the processes that they have, and I mean. It is not cheap. I yeah. mean, it, it is ridiculous. Walmart would be the first people to do it, for sure. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and they decided to put it at their busiest facility. They're like, we're oh just going guns ablaze. And so, you know, as you start to see that, um, you know, I, I would tell anybody who's watching the podcast or just anybody in general, uh, you know, don't be negligent to where the technology is going. A lot of times mm-hmm. people get so dismissive and they're just like, yeah. uh, you know, I don't want to pay attention to it. But, yeah. no, it's like in your backyard. Like, like get mm-hmm. on board. It's, it's going to be a fun ride. Yeah. No, for sure. Uh Sterling, I uh, just want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, we've already taken up enough. I know you're very busy. Um, so, again, thank you. Um, I'm going to let you probably get back to work now. <laughs> um, and, and thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe. This is podcast. If you are listening, don't forget we also have a YouTube channel, so you can also view it there. Um, but thank you, everybody. Yep, and thank you. Until next time. Bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Promus Incorporated, hosted by Matthew Rawl, mixed and edited by Ben Parsons, and produced by myself, Lauren Rawl. If you have any questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to podcast at promisinc.com.